Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello, my name is Justin Hannenberg with the ASCLS Off the Bench podcast, discussing scientific and not so scientific topics in the clinical laboratory. November 20th marks the Transgender Day of Remembrance in the U.S. and Canada, raising awareness to the high rate of violence endured by transgender people. Healthcare providers may be committed to delivering quality services, yet trans and gender nonconforming patients face the highest risk of adversity when seeking care compared to others in the broader LGBTQ community. Today's episode is focused on the laboratory's role in addressing gaps in healthcare quality for transgender patients. We're joined by Romy Selzer of the Henry Ford Hospital Blood Bank in downtown Detroit, Michigan, and Dr. Gabrielle Winston McPherson, or Dr. Gabby for short. Dr. Gabby is the Associate Director of Chemistry overseeing the Core Automation Laboratory at Henry Ford Hospital. This episode is a bit shorter than our usual educational content, so no CE credit this time, but I trust you'll find the next half hour segment to be well worthwhile. My name is Romy Selzer, and I'm a senior technologist in the blood bank at Henry Ford Hospital in downtown Detroit, Michigan. And today I'm joined by our speaker, Dr. Gabrielle Winston McPherson. Dr. Winston McPherson, or Dr. Gabby, as she asked me to call her, is the Associate Director of Chemistry, overseeing the Core Automation Laboratory at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. After receiving her doctorate in pharmaceutical sciences from the University of Wisconsin, she completed a postdoctoral clinical chemistry fellowship at the University of Washington Medical Center. Her research interests include health equity, laboratory management, and automation. And today we will be discussing healthcare for transgender patients. So, Dr. Gabby, could you tell us a little something about how you came into this field? Well, Romy, um, I've been interested in health and medicine really for as long as I can remember. But in college, I really found myself torn between my passion for chemistry research, um, which I got involved with as an undergraduate, and my interest in healthcare. I decided to study organic chemistry in grad school. I really wanted to pursue research at that point in my life. But funny enough, in graduate school, I ended up working on a project that focused on designing therapeutics for this condition known as familial hypercholesterolemia. So very much health related. And I absolutely loved that project. And I found that it really sparked a renewed interest for me in healthcare. So toward the end of my PhD, I decided to transition from a basic lab research setting and, and future to a field that would allow me to use the skills I developed as a PhD student toward the improvement of patient care. Um, and that's really what, what brings me here today. I also want to just say thank you so much for inviting me uh, to be a part of this podcast. I'm very excited. And as you mentioned earlier, the topic we're going to be discussing is transgender healthcare. 
So I want to start by clarifying that my pronouns are she and her, and I also want to make it very clear that I do not position myself as an expert on the experiences of transgender people um, because I myself do not identify as a member of that community. And I really want to emphasize that on this topic, the most important voices and perspectives to listen to are those of transgender people. So how exactly did you get interested in transgender healthcare? Well, as you mentioned a little bit in the introduction, um, I've had an interest in health equity. And really, I've had an interest in health equity for, for quite a long time. While I was a clinical chemistry fellow, I had the opportunity to work on a clinical research project with one of my, my mentors at the time, Dr. Dina Green. We were investigating differences in the vaginal microbiome between cisgender women and transgender men who were stable on stable doses of hormonal gender-affirming therapy. And throughout the course of that project, I learned a lot about exactly how much of a knowledge gap exists in the field of transgender healthcare. And so that, together with my interest in equity, really um, set me towards a path of, of developing a strong interest in this field. That's very interesting. Thank you for that. So our objectives for today are the following. Understand the importance of descriptive language as it applies to members of the transgender community, identify unique challenges associated with caring for the transgender community, and identify the role of laboratory medicine in caring for transgender patients. So with that stated, let's dive right into it. What's the difference between sex assigned at birth and gender identity? That's a fantastic question, Romy, and a really good place for us to start. So sex assignment, particularly sex assignment at birth, is typically determination of an infant's sex characteristics based on um, anatomical features, whereas gender identity is a psychological identification that develops over time as a person grows, right? So when we're born, we don't typically have an idea of, of who we are in terms of male or female. That identity really develops as we age. Often we think of gender identity as a binary, so feminine or masculine, but in reality, this concept exists on a spectrum. There is another important term that we should cover at this point, and that term is gender expression. In contrast to sex assigned at birth and gender identity, which are largely internal or private, gender expression is the outward or visible presentation of one's gender. Um, this could be how you wear your hair, how you wear your clothes, um, the way that you speak, but it, it, it's how you want to express yourself to the world. Um, gender expression is also another concept that exists on a spectrum and not as a binary. I think these concepts, particularly the idea of gender existing on a spectrum, 
can be challenging to explain and even more challenging to grasp. So often it's helpful to have some kind of visual representation. And I want to point out that there's a very wonderful resource. It's a website called The Genderbred Person. It can be found at genderbread.org and it breaks down concepts of sex, gender identity, gender expression, using images and simple language to explain these ideas and concepts. And I, I highly recommend that listeners check it out. So is it possible for sex assigned at birth and gender identity not to align? Absolutely. Um, and when this happens, it's called gender non-congruence, or more specifically, a person whose gender identity or their gender expression does not align with their sex assigned at birth. Um, these individuals may identify as transgender. And moreover, when the two do align, we call that cisgender. But also know that there are individuals who identify as non-binary, so on neither end of the spectrum. They do identify on the gender spectrum, but as neither male nor female, and their identity may align more or less with their sex, which was assigned at birth. So do we know how many transgender individuals are in the United States? That is a tough question. Um, we have estimates, but the exact number is hard to pinpoint. So I can say that the low estimate is about 1.4 million people or 1.4 million transgender people here in the United States. And so that might sound like a big number to some or a small number to others, but to put it in perspective, that's just about the same population of Manhattan. So it is a significant number of individuals, and do keep in mind that that is likely an underestimation. What kind of psychological and physical challenges does the transgender community face? This is another big, challenging question. <laughs> um, before I can jump in, I want to make it clear that gender non-congruence and being transgender, it's not a disease. It's not pathology. It does not come with any inherent pathology. It is simply a state of being, just as cisgender is a state of being. However, there is a specific psychological condition known as gender dysphoria, which is defined as a feeling of discomfort or distress that may occur in people whose gender identity differs from their sex assigned at birth or sex-related physical characteristics. So where, where does the distress or discomfort come from? Because this is really kind of the, the root of the matter. It's believed that much of the distress is from societal pressure to behave, look, or express oneself in a way that does not align with who you are on the inside. And sometimes this societal pressure really even crosses the line into verbal and physical abuse. So when we say distress, we're really talking about something very significant here. Gender dysphoria can be quite devastating and is thought to be a contributing factor to the relatively high rates of attempted suicide that exist in the transgender community. Um, but also really do understand that 
some transgender people experience gender dysphoria at some point in their life, but not everyone is affected by it. So it's not something that is experienced by all transgender people. Now, for the individuals that do experience gender dysphoria, there is treatment available. It's known as gender-affirming therapy. It is a combination of social, hormonal, and sometimes surgical interventions that help to affirm or support one's gender identity and has been shown to improve well-being and be very effective for treating gender dysphoria in those individuals who experience it. How is the transgender community impacted by the health system in the United States? So I'll start with what we know, which is that transgender patients experience poor access to and quality of health care. One contributing factor is their experience within the healthcare system. So transgender patients have reported being refused care um, by providers, as well as being harassed and even assaulted by healthcare providers. And I just, I want to pause for a minute there. Um, can you imagine going in to seek health care and find yourself being assaulted by that very health care provider? It really is quite shocking. Um, as a result of this, as a result of these experiences, many members of this population avoid seeking necessary treatment, avoid um, basic primary care, Additionally, uh, recent policy changes at the federal level that roll back healthcare coverage for gender-affirming therapies that we know help to address gender dysphoria, you know, is highly concerning and, to be frank, dangerous. So these are some examples of how the U.S. healthcare system impacts transgender patients. Um, it's not all bad news. There are specific providers and clinics that work to serve this community and provide quality care, the same quality care that all patients deserve, but it should be the standard for all care providers and all care institutions and not present in, in just a select few. So how are laboratory results impacted by hormonal gender-affirming therapies? Hormonal gender-affirming therapy can be masculinizing, which is testosterone therapy, essentially, or feminizing, which is estrogen therapy. So the impact of these gender-affirming hormonal therapies on lab values is really still being studied, and there have been recent papers coming out showing how certain lab values are impacted. What we know, what has been shown, is that hematologic parameters may increase or decrease from a baseline value depending on which hormonal therapy is used. And what's very interesting is that the change typically results in values that fall within the range of the corresponding gender, meaning that a transgender man would have hematologic lab values in the same range as a cisgender man. There are also some changes in chemistry values. We see this with creatinine and also hepatic enzymes um, can shift as well. So how can us as laboratory professionals can help caring for this population? 
So there are several different ways. Um, so sometimes we forget that many patients interact with the lab every single day when they present for specimen collection, right? When they present at phlebotomy. Um, the lab can really help to improve care by developing policies and providing training to ensure that transgender patients are treated with respect, right? So to prevent some of those poor interactions that these patients experience. Also, we can help our primary care providers. Um, they have a need to understand what results are expected for their patients in order to avoid potential mistreatment. Laboratorians can really help here by making sure that their providers have access to correct appropriate reference interval inter information for this population. And that can be as simple as adjusting how we report certain values. And it can also be engaging in research and studies to improve what we know about those lab values. As a transfusion medicine technologist, I can see how big of an impact um, not being able to correctly identify transgender patients can be. Could you give us an example of a case where this could cause a problem for the lab or for the patient. Absolutely. So there was actually a recent case published by Mays and colleagues that describes a instance where a transgender man of childbearing age was at risk of receiving the incorrect blood type due to lack of mention of both his birth sex and gender identity in the electronic health record. So some details about the case. This was a 40-year-old transgender man. His gender was appropriately listed as male in the EHR, but no additional information about his sex assigned at birth. So the reason why he found himself in the hospital was that following biopsy of cervical masses, he experienced very heavy vaginal bleeding that was uncontrolled. Because of that, he was transitioned to a tertiary care institution where the hemorrhaging um, continued and therefore a massive transfusion protocol was initiated. The hospital blood bank prepared multiple units of ORH positive blood for transfusion of this individual. So, Romy, do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of sex identification for recipients of blood products? Yeah. So, um, like I said, I work in the blood bank. And in our institution, um, we, for massive transfusion protocol, we give six-pack red blood cells, six plasmas, and one platelet. Um, depending on the sex and the age of the patient, they either get OH positive or OH negative red cells. So any women of childbearing age will get RH negative if we don't already know their blood type. And if it's any males over 16 years of age, will get RH positive. And this has to do with just supply and demand. Um, unfortunately, and especially in this time, um, the supply of blood is very scarce. So we do have to do that kind of accommodation. Um, and we do go by what 
the EMR is telling us or what the doctors and nurses are letting us know that the age and the, the sex of the patient is. Very interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so in this case, um, just to remind us, we have a child, we have a 40-year-old transgender man of childbearing age, and the lab has prepared uh, multiple units of ORH positive um, RBCs for transfusion. However, before releasing those units, the lab noted that the order came from an OB-GYN floor, and that confused the lab, so they called to inquire about the patient's sex because they thought maybe there was a mistake. Um, at this point in time, they were informed that this was a uh, transgender man, and they decided to recall the RH positive RBC units and instead release four units of ORH negative RBCs. So really, what concerns me the most about this case, even though an error was prevented, it's that the error was only identified because the patient just so happened to be on an OB-GYN floor. Now, what if they had been in a different unit? So, so Romy, in, in transfusion medicine, do you have any mechanisms for identifying this kind of situation? We really don't. And I don't think we've come, um, we, we ever come across a situation like this, but I can see how if we don't have the whole picture and we don't have a way to identify these patients correctly. I mean, yes, they're, they're males. They had, they, they identify as males and that's absolutely correct. But if we don't know that they still have the capability of bearing children, there are complications that could arise from getting RH positive blood. And if we don't have that kind of communication, then it could be very catastrophic when it comes time for this patient to become pregnant. Absolutely. And then what, what Romy is talking about here is the risk of alloimmunization, which can eventually or potentially lead to hemolytic disease of the fetus um, at the time that uh, an individual becomes pregnant. So there really are several aspects of this case that would need to be addressed in order to prevent this kind of error. But from my perspective, the, the biggest is a need for the EHR to identify both gender and sex assigned at birth. Now, I can say that there are EHRs who are working on this to allow the collection of this information. Um, so providers and, and um, blood bankers can have access to it. But after that happens, healthcare systems will still need to make it standard of practice to really collect the information and then use it in their clinical care, particularly in situations such as this. So that was an excellent case, Dr. Gabby. Thank you for sharing that. Are there any other cases that you can think of that would apply to the core laboratory? You know, there is. Um, there's another case, and I'm glad that um, you mentioned that, because this case really highlights how 
sex-specific reference intervals and calculations for um, chemistry tests in particular can impact clinical care for transgender patients. So this was a case that was published in 2017 by Whitley and Green, and the topic of the case is a 33-year-old transgender male patient. He is 5 foot 1 and about 135 pounds. So this is a relatively petite individual. We know that he follows a vegan diet and is prescribed daily intramuscular testosterone at levels of 100 milligrams per week. So the patient initially presented to the ED with acute otitis media. Essentially, this is a, a very painful kind of ear infection. He was also found to be hypertensive at this point, uh, 170 over 110. So the ED recommended that the patient be admitted for care, but the patient refused this because of past experience and concern with discrimination. So he decided to instead follow up with his primary care provider um, for, for treatment. So already here, we're seeing a situation where this man does not get the care that he needs at the time that he needs it because of very real concerns that impact the transgender community. Later, when he presents to his primary care team, they run several labs and the labs indicate significant renal damage. So we see a urine total protein that is 20 times the reference interval. His EGFR is low, but I wanna point out here that EGFR is a sex-specific calculation and differs, um, the calculation specifically differs between men and women. So as a quick refresher, EGFR is a marker of kidney function that uses an equation which is designed to approximate the measured GFR. The estimate is based largely on creatinine values. And again, creatinine is a chemistry test or marker with a reference interval that is sex specific. It's mostly affected, the, the level of creatinine is mostly affected by muscle mass and protein intake. So recall that our patient is petite and also on a vegan diet. Um, I, I believe that those are relevant pieces to this case. On another note, there is a different marker that's not as commonly used, known as cystatin C, and we can use this marker to calculate EGFR, but what's nice about cystatin C is that it is not a sex-specific marker, and it does not have a sex-specific range associated with it. So getting back to the case, um, this patient's EGFR when the male equation was used was higher than when the female equation was used. At this point, the patient is diagnosed with chronic kidney disease stage three based on his EGFR using the male equation. So why does EGFR matter in this situation at all? 
Why am I talking about it so much? Well, for qualifying to be listed for a renal transplant, um, there's multiple factors that go into that decision. One of the factors is the EGFR, and there is a threshold that is required. And that threshold says that the EGFR needs to be less than 20 in order to meet that one specific criteria to be listed for a transplant. Now, when the female equation is used for EGFR, this patient is very close to that threshold. But when the male equation is used for EGFR, he's much farther away from that less than 20 threshold. So the care team used the male equation um, for this patient's EGFR. And as a result of that, the patient did not reach that less than 20 point until 15 months after he presented to his care team. However, if the female equation would have been used, he would have reached that qualification point only five months after his presentation. When he did qualify for transplant, um, he had lost 35 pounds and was excreting three grams of protein per day into his urine. So to conclude this case, the patient did eventually receive a transplant. However, multiple treatments that he needed were delayed and he experienced a significant decline in his quality of life during that time while he was waiting to be listed for a transplant. Some final things that I wanna say about this case is that one of the biggest questions for me that comes up when I read this is, well, which EGFR was right? Which one should they have used? And the answer is, we don't actually know because we don't have very robust studies on EGFR in transgender patients. And it's actually still fairly unclear to what extent a creatinine-based EGFR may be impacted by gender-affirming hormonal therapy, which this patient was taking at the time. What we do know is that there are ways to determine EGFR using a non-sex-specific marker. As mentioned earlier, this test is Cystatin-C, and it may have been a better option in adequately assessing this patient's kidney function. That is absolutely very relevant and very interesting. Um, the difference of having the, that kind of information ahead of time um, can help and benefit the patient healthcare. So thank you for sharing that. It's I've absolutely loved talking to you, and this is a subject that I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more in, in the future about. I surely hope so. Thank you, Romy. Now for the fun part, if you can pick an enzyme uh, to best represent you, which would it be and why? Okay, so this is a... Very hard question. I am a fan of many enzymes, um, but I think my favorite, I'm torn between two, 
I'm going to go with GGT um, because my first name is Gabrielle and that starts with a G. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no wrong or right answer, so we'll take it. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of ASCLS Off the Bench. We'd love to hear from you. Check ASCLS on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to join the discussion. Thank you, Dr. Gabby, for joining me. We certainly learned a lot today. And again, my name is Romy, and I thank you for listening to this episode and hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. See you next time.